Bo, uh, this is such a fun book and it delves into so many aspects as to how to debate and how to argue. But you talk also in the book a bit about your personal story and I know we're uh, honoured tonight to have your parents here in the front row joining us. Uh, and you t start the book by telling the story about when you were a primary schooler, newly arrived from South Korea, and you say you lost the ability to disagree. How did you get it back? Um, I'm going to start by filibustering a little bit. Um, first, to thank you so much for being here. Um, you have no reason to remember this, but when I was in year 10, I would have come to Canberra for a model UN conference, um, the other nerdy pursuit that I won't write a book about. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I heard you speak. And I remember thinking at that time that a thinker could be a politician and a politician could be a thinker. Um, and you really set me up for disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in a lot of ways, but I think that is the gift of a person's example is a raising of expectations. Mm. So thank you for that and thank you for being here. Um, and I want to thank all of you for being here also. I've been on uh, the road for this book, uh, mostly in the US, but also um, talking in the UK, and now I've arrived as this is my final stop. Um, this is a country where I grew up. It's where I learned to debate. It's where I wrote this book. And um, the education that I describe in this book is in some ways an answer to the question, what did it mean for me to grow up here rather than somewhere else? Um, so it's very special to have you all joining um, and to be in conversation with you today. To your question. I lost the ability to disagree because I very quickly learned when I moved to this country without speaking English when I was eight that the hardest part of crossing language lines is adjusting to real life conversation and the hardest conversations to adjust to are disagreements because it's there that people's passions tend to run and their facial expressions stop matching what's coming out of their mouths, and they tend to interrupt. And I wouldn't have had the language at this time, but I think I sensed even then that a lot of newcomers to a place, it often feels like your welcomeness to your new surrounds is kind of conditional on not rocking the boat too much. Um, on not objecting too much. And all of that made me resolve to be very agreeable. And the thing that shook me out of that um, was a promise that my fifth grade teacher made me, which was that in debating, when one person speaks, no one else does. And to someone who had been spoken over and interrupted and spun out of conversation, um, that was the closest thing that I'd come across to an irresistible promise. Um, so it was there that I, I, I discovered a whole lot else, but it was that promise initially that made me think, well, maybe I could enter into a conversation, maybe I could disagree. And your path to debating seems to come through a huge amount of hard work. You have a moment in the book where you talk about resolving to write a hundred arguments in four weeks. Uh, what led to that and, and what did that exercise give you? Um, it's a description of a very well-adjusted child. <laughs> um, I think it was a product of, of schools debating, actually. It's a, a community that many of you would have seen at the local middle school, high school, even down to primary school. And it's a community of people who have somehow come to the conclusion that disagreement isn't just a kind of a state of, state of things. It's not something that just visits upon you. It's something that you go into very intentionally. There are coaches. Uh, there are ideas of best practices, and there's practice too. Um, 
And for me, where disagreements felt disempowering, where my differences threatened to set me aside, uh, that practical element of debate, the idea that you could work at it, that disagreeing was skill, it was work, it was a kind of a muscle. Um, it was a very hopeful thing in my life. You talk about one aspect of a good debater, which I think we do especially badly in politics, which is the value of making the audience curious. Uh, and you talk about one of your debating opponents, Deborah, who did this particularly well. How, how is curiosity best engendered? That's very interesting. I'd start by maybe answering it in the negative, which is um, how do you quash people's curiosity? And I think the answer to that is um, by not listening, right? And by uh, and and this is a moment that comes in the book because when you start learning this skill of argument, you get pretty excited, um, and something like everything starts to look like a nail if you're wielding the hammer. And so you get this sense, I can make these elaborate arguments, I can uh, be spectacular. Um, in that real true sense of being a spectacle that others behold. But of course, the thing you're trying to do in debate is not to put on a show, it's to try and move people. And in order to move people, you need a destination, sure, which is what you want them to believe, what you want them to think by the end of it. But you also need a starting point. Um, and being sensitive to where it is that the listener is, what it is that they care for, um, I think that allows you to, if, if curiosity is the kind of the path that's going to channel people from where they were to where they're going, I think having a sense of the starting place um, is a way to engender, as you say, um, or to keep curiosity alive. Mm. And you've got a bit in the book about sort of the, the, the structure of good arguments and talk about the four W's. What, what are they and why are they essential to, uh, to effective arguments? Yeah, so um, the book has these kinds of pedagogical bits or just sort of teaching lessons or drills that um, the debating community has kind of come up with um, in answer to quite old questions like what do you need to actually prove in order to persuade someone to change their mind? Um, so they're almost kinds of shorthands um, for, for doing some of this work. And it starts with the premise that um, an argument is not just a kind of an inchoate um, repetition or expression of your, all your feelings about a particular subject. An argument is a particular kind of expression. And the four W's um, says you have to be clear on what the point that you're trying to make is. You have to explain why it's true. The third is when, when has it happened before? Is there an example or is there some evidence in favor of this? And then the last point is, well, who cares? Why does that matter? Why should that get the other person to change their mind? So um, it's a kind of a checklist. It's a structure for coming up with arguments. It's a checklist mid-argument to check whether you've crossed all the bases. But um, we come up with these drills because they help us externalize. They help us remember uh, what it is that we want our arguments to do. And I think those are four kind of questions that set the floor of what an argument must do. One of the other key aspects of the book is talking about the value of rebuttal. Um, you have this, you make this lovely point, which I'd never realised before, that until Edmund Burke's day, 
oppositions uh, often just decamped from parliament. They didn't bother turning up uh, on the basis that what's the point of being there if you're not in government? Um, you know, after nine years in opposition, I can say that's a little bit tempting. But um, you, you would have had more of a turn. Yeah, you you talk about how it actually is really important to the parliamentary system that the opposition is there to test the government. And likewise, you talk in debating about the importance of rebuttal and, and a good rebuttal. Uh, and one of the, the stories there that really stands out to me is uh, your coach Bruce and his uh, BS introduction. Uh, tell us about that one. Yeah. Um, so I had this, uh, the coach of the Australian team, I call him Bruce in the book, and Ned was um, on that team with me. And, and you remember Ned, he's a, a you know, big guy, a former rugby player. He would say things unironically like, to get big, you have to hit against the biggest or the, you know, uh, uh, the toughest players. And um, one of the things that he was encouraging us to do in debate is to call bull a bit more on the other side, right? Just, to Just saying that because your parents are here. Yeah, I am. Yeah. <laughs> and also the... Hollowed halls of the ANU. Um, uh, and I used to think that was a kind of a very destructive impulse, right? To tear down the other side. But one of the things he pointed out to me is when you're defaulting to agreement, you're depriving the other side an opportunity to have their response heard, accounted for, and responded to, right? That mm. the impulse to run away from argument is not just a vote of no confidence in your ability to raise a rebutting argument or to refute an argument, but also a vote of no confidence in the other side to receive your criticism with some measure of grace and to make it productive. And... To the start of your question about the idea of a loyal opposition, the thing that I'm searching for in this book at a time when bad disagreements seem to be the problem, the, the, leading, the, the thesis that I'm chasing is that the opposite of bad disagreement is not agreement, but it's good disagreement. That if we're able to harness the generative force of debate and disagreement in our political realm and our personal lives, we might end up somewhere better. Mm. And the, the parliamentary system is, I think, at its best um, based on that idea too. Yes, and I guess that's where that phrase, Her Majesty's loyal opposition, comes from, in the sense that there is a, a loyalty to country from being an effective opposition. Um, we talked before about some of the cross-cultural aspects of coming from Korea to Australia, yeah. but the other big cross-cultural story in, uh, in your wonderful book is uh, being in the United States. Yeah. And uh, for me, kind of evocative, I was uh, in, in those same sort of areas, Grendel's Den, Pinocchio's and all of those, uh, those hangouts uh, a, a, little, a little before before you. But what do you think the cultural difference is in the way in which Australians and Americans debate? Now I'm just thinking about the pizza. <laughs> um, I do think I would not have had the same education in debate that I would have had I not grown up in this country. And I think the reason for that is our status as a kind of a middle power on the periphery of the world, away from the other great metropolises, I think it does give us a kind of a critical distance, a sense that not everything is within our control, a sense of humor, an irony, that makes debate and argumentation a kind of a part of the national impulse in as much as you can talk about something like that. And one of the things that, and it's, it's one thing that gives me a, a lot of, hope um, about the politics in this country, especially when I um, am in the US, because I think the other dynamic in the US is um, the burden of centrality uh, hangs very heavy on the shoulders of that country. Um, that mm. 
um, there cannot be that much room for irony and critical distance and so on because um, so much of the national identity is around being at the center. Um, and, and I don't envy that <laughs> because it puts everything to a kind of a very high octane gear. Um, so there, there must be an earnestness almost to everything because um, you're in the middle of it. And so uh, there's this line from the poet um, Ocean Vuong that queerness is a kind of an epistemology for him. And for me, I wonder if peripherality, marginality, um, if that can be a kind of an epistemology for us too. Um, and, and, and certainly you don't get that in the US. Yeah, no, I certainly feel as somebody who's passionate about politics that there is a sense when you're in the US of, you know, being in Rome at the height of the Roman Empire and, uh, you know, maybe to be Australian is to be in the place where they're writing the asterisks and uh, an obelisk uh, no, books, uh, <laughs> which, which you, couldn't, you couldn't do out of, uh, out of Rome because it's, it's just too serious an environment. Yeah, that's right. Um, but you're also there at that kind of really interesting period around a lot of deplatforming, and you talk a bit in the book about uh, the debates that the Harvard Debating Union had over free speech and and what can be debated. Uh, what would how did the Harvard Debating Union figure out what were the topics that that could and should be debated, and what shouldn't be? It's it's a deep question, and it's something that I wrestle with because. Um, and it's something that I'm having to think about on this book tour a lot. Um, because in the end, debate can be in emancipatory and, and can be transformative in all the ways that I believe, but it is also a burden. And it's a burden that's not borne equally by people. For some people, a debate is just, I had an idea and now I'm going to raise it. For an another group of people may be fighting for their rights, right? And um, that disparity is a very difficult thing. The way in which we sort of thought about it, because in debating, um, one of the things that I think debating does right is it says every disagreement should start with some agreement. And one of the things we need to agree on is what we're arguing about so that our arguments don't just become about everything. And um, it's a hard thing because you then have to come up with a topic, mm. right? What, what kinds of subjects are you going to give the legitimacy of saying this is what the debate is about and uh the the only real red line that we drew um and that i think i believe in is that you should not debate the equal moral worth of persons and the reason for that in addition to a, a, you know a host of reasons is um, it's antithetical to what debate is about, right? Debate says we're going to give people an equal opportunity to be heard, to contest their ideas because we believe they are worth hearing. Um, so I think, you know, a debate, whether a, a group of people is inferior to another group of people is not an appropriate subject for debate. That doesn't necessarily mean we need to stop all speech about it. It's that debate is just not the appropriate way to have that discussion, right? And um, then there are sort of other considerations, especially when you're putting on a public debate and you're a media organization, um, staging a debate kind of implies there are two sides on a particular issue, right? And, and so the optics of that, I think, are something that you have to bear in mind. And then maybe the last thing that we said was, um, thinking about that unequal burden on people. And, and one of the things that the debating community often does is when you have a kind of a new issue um, or um, an issue that people aren't very well versed in talking about, like um, trans rights, for example, mm -hmm. has become a, a, a big flashpoint in recent years, um, we say there's, there needs to be a period of preparation where we're not debating, we're listening, or we're learning, or we're researching, because the shadow of the right to debate, which we hear a lot about, is the responsibility to do it well. 
Um, and and so I don't want the book to be a kind of a, I think there can be a cruelty in saying, um, come on, free speech, let's all debate about it, when the conditions aren't there for that conversation to go well. Mm. Um, and so I would almost flip the order of saying we have to do the the preparation, and a part of that is relearning the skills of good argument so that we might be able to expand the range of things that we talk about. So to take a practical example, would the Harvard Debating Union uh, conduct a debate as to whether the international swimming body was right to make its recent decision on transgender pe people? I think it probably would. Um, uh, with the addition of um, to be a part of this community, and what is debate? It's a community built around and not despite disagreement, mm. right? Uh, which is a, a, a difficult thing to manage. That a part of the conditions of being in this community, of participating in this community, of enacting what this community stands for is um, taking seriously your responsibility um, in addition to your right to be heard. So debate tends to be um, very cerebral and uh, you talk in, in, the, in the book about uh, how Aristotle described anger or revenge as being sweeter than honeycomb. Uh, why, does, why does anger tend to hijack a debate and, and take it off the rails? I think the reason is it becomes an end unto itself. Mm. Um, kind of like a mosquito bite. <laughs> or something. It it just um, it 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 has its own purpose, right? And for anger, it's something like just the expression of anger. It might morph into something more damaging, like hurting the other person. Um, and so, what begins as a debate, which is meant to be a conversation about a particular issue or a question that you're talking about. Um, it becomes war by other means almost, right? And uh, yeah, I think that's the problem. Mm. Uh, you uh, also talk about what debating can teach us about interacting online. And, and you drew my attention to this wonderful Reddit thread, which I'd never come across before, changed my view. Uh, and I was looking at it in preparation for uh, tonight's conversation. Uh, they, uh, so people post uh, ideas on which they're open to having their view changed. So the new ones are that pubs shouldn't allow kids, that philosophy should be compulsory at high school, and that humour is a better unifier of humanity than love. Uh, what is it you like about Change My View, Bo? Um, I actually did a, a Reddit um, Ask Me Anything recently, which was viewed by an alarmingly large number of people. And the al alarming, and what, the other thing that was alarming was the number of responses that um, made the master debate a joke. <laughs> Um, just to bring it down to the level. <laughs> um, so Reddit is kind of built around these communities and one of them is called Change My View. And uh, it's a kind of a debating platform where people put forward an idea and they agree to debate that proposition. And um, it's just an, it's an interesting question how these online communities form and how they debate develop the rules that they do. Mm. Um, so I think all of our public spaces have implicit rules. Um, and Change My View is interesting because the way in which those rules come to be is through prescription. There's a kind of a moderator um, and a, maybe a governing body almost that has a, a set of rules that's longer than the US Constitution, right? And, and, and you basically can't post without breaking one of the rules <laughs> because you have to put the commas in the right place and it has to be a certain length and so on. And so one thing I liked about it was um, that kind of attention to the acoustics of the space where we have our conversation. 
and I think it's not something we're very deliberate about, that we're not very thoughtful about, that disagreement just kind of visits upon us where we happen to be, but we know the channels and the places where we have our disagreements are not neutral. So it means one thing to have a debate on Twitter where the most inflammatory kind of material is being promoted by algorithm versus doing it face-to-face. -face. So that's one thing I like about it. But in the book, ultimately, I kind of say there's a limit to what that top-down approach can achieve, what codification can achieve, because... Um, and it's a very small community, actually, relative to Reddit. And the reason for that is I don't think, you know, people have the time or the energy to get across all these rules or want to feel like they're being policed in this way. And so I wonder, rather than this kind of prescriptive approach, the view that I have is in a world where people have the skills of disagreement and they have that kind of capacity, um, they can almost bring the structure with them. They can bring the, the rules and the norms with them rather than having it imposed from top down. Mm. So uh, I've never said this anywhere before, but um, inside my bathroom cabinet, just near where I keep my toothbrush, I have a little um, passage from a Mark Twain letter uh, in which he says, there is no time, so brief is life, for bickerings and callings to account and apologies. There is only time for loving and but a brief instant for that. And I was thinking about that when you, I was reading your section of the book where you talk about when not to have an argument, when we shouldn't disagree. What are the conditions that you set for when we should avoid arguing? Yeah. So the book kind of comes up with a checklist um, for people to think about because otherwise we often just launch into disagreements, don't we? Out of defensiveness or pride or something like that. And one of the things that I suggest people do is to ask whether the disagreement is real. It's not an imagined slight or something like that. That it's important enough to justify the disagreement. That it's specific enough so you're not just talking about the virtues of liberalism writ large, um, and to check whether the two sides are aligned in their interests for uh, wanting to engage in the dispute. So the other person's not just in it to hurt your feelings or something like that. But I, I love the quote, um, and um, obviously I take a different view that bickering and disagreeing they don't just provide the spice to life. They are, for me, a kind of an expression of what it means to live a life with other people who disagree with you, who are different from you. That, and I think this is something we know as children, that we're different from other people, and we test the boundaries of that all the time, right? We, we are kind of annoying <laughs> to our friends, as, and we needle them as a way to say, I'm different from you. <laughs> And I think we learn as we grow up that um, that it, when we love someone, we're in this funny position of wanting them to be more like us, but knowing that if they were the same as us, um, you would be losing something too. Mm. Um, so I, I'll try and come up with another quote that you might be able to <laughs> put in the bathroom. But, but I think the, I, I, I see it as a kind of a loving thing. But you also point out that the average household has 217 arguments a year over, the, over washing the dishes. <laughs> um, and that is clearly something where we're spending much too much time arguing, where we should just find consensus on that. And so we can then pick really interesting things to differ over. Yes. That's certainly not my uh, idea of romantic love. <laughs> it's just the dishwashing. Um, and, uh, but you know, the thing that, that that makes me think about our disagreements with the people we love the most is there is a kind of a poignancy to that, that if you love them a little bit less, if you shared your life with them a little bit less, the disagreements wouldn't be as painful. 
you know, because it's with the people we're closest to that um, that we have this idea that they should just get us, you know, before we we've even said a word, and we should agree because we've we've agreed to share our lives together, and. Um, and so there's lots of different things I go into in the book, but one of them is, especially in settings where you could argue about a million different things. You could argue about in a, the dishwashing then becomes what your mother and father-in-law did the other day, the way you treated me the other month, so on and so on. Again, going back to doing one conversation at a time, right? figuring out what it is that we're disagreeing about before launching into it. Because the, the dishwashing, it turns out, can be a metaphor. <laughs> and, and so having a conversation beforehand of, well, what's this really about? Mm. Right? And coming to some agreement about the disagreement you're about to have, I think, can help. And your book sort of segue. Uh, one of the things overlying it, I think, is uh, the way in, is the Trump presidency. And uh, you know, I don't know to what extent you were writing during it or in the shadow of the Trump presidency, but you do talk about uh, bullies in uh, in in debates, and you have a number of different categories of bullies: the Dodgers, the Twisters, the Wranglers, the Liars. Tell us about some of those categories and how bullies can can stymie a good debate. Yeah, the the. 2016 presidential election um, in particular between Trump and Clinton was an important part of my writing this book because prior to that, um, when I was, I had won the World um, Universities Debating Championships in January 2016. And uh, if I had written the book then, it would have been a kind of a, like a sports memoir, except there's no sports. <laughs> but it's a kind of a, you know, a guy learning a, a sport or an activity and, and, and taking it to the highest level that they could. But months after that, we saw an election cycle that unleashed a lot of ugliness in general, but in particular saw the debate format being hijacked, mm. um, almost weaponized. And... Um, and that made me think, oh, this subject matter is more complex um, than just uh, a straightforwardly good thing that you can learn and, and, and be well on your way. Um, so the thing that I did in response to that is just to try and diagnose what is it that a bully does in a debate to wrest it out of the rest of our control and to hijack it. And for me, there was power in being able to name those tactics um, because it gives you a measure of control over them. Mm. So some of the tactics that I describe is, so the wrangler is the person who, for whom nothing is ever good enough, right? They can think of critiques to almost everything that you say. And they're constantly shifting the goalposts because they're refuting each argument without putting forward anything of their own. And one of the things that I suggest is, to pause and say, well, what do you believe? Right? Because they're implicitly arguing for a position too, mm. even if it's just doing nothing or keeping things the way they are. And, um, and for me, those things are, there's power in being able to name them. There are techniques to resisting them. But for me, um, maybe the last thing is when you feel like you're in a debate with a bully, pausing and saying, well, is it a debate that we're trying to have or is it a different kind of discussion? And I think sometimes just reminding people of that not all conversations are built the same and not all disagreements are built the same and, and coming to some agreement that it's a discussion we're trying to have and not an all-out brawl um, and, and, and just breaking the wall on that, uh, I think that can be helpful. What is the side switch? And when can it be helpful? So much of debate is being very certain um, in yourself and in the case that you're arguing. So you spend, a, you know, um, in the format of debate I did, you spend between an hour to 15 minutes preparing. Some formats give you a week or a month. So you're really embodying this perspective for quite a long period of time. 
and uh, but one of the things that debaters learn to do, train to do, is in the last five minutes or the last little bit before you go on, to take out a new sheet of paper and to think up the best arguments for the other side, or to go through your own case through the eyes of the other of someone who disagrees with you and try to poke as many holes as you can. And I describe that in the book as a kind of a, a form of empathy. And it's not complete in that you obviously don't know exactly what the other side thinks. But I think that humility and that moment of thinking, well, maybe I haven't gotten it 100%. I think that gives a kind of a wriggle room through which something like empathy might be able to emerge. Mm. We'll uh, open up in a moment for questions. So if anyone would like to ask a question, please come down and line up in front of the microphone here. I'll ask Bo one more question while people are rushing the microphone. Or if you don't, I'll just continue asking questions. Uh, Bo, you talk about the role of fake news and you, you particularly like the example of Taiwan. What is it the Taiwanese do to, to stop fake news and, and how do they use humour and memes to really skewer the, uh, the nastiest elements of fake news? Yeah, so this is a kind of a, a, a project um, and a response to misinformation, disinformation, headed by the first digital minister um, of Taiwan, who's the first transgender um, cabinet minister, I think, in Asia, so in the region. Um, Remarkable. Person. I believe that's true. And, and she was a coder, right? And she comes from this kind of anarchist background um, of returning power to the people. And that shows up in their response to misinformation in two ways. The first is there's a willingness to kind of almost compete with, with the things that make fake news proliferate. And, and one of them is a kind of a sense of humor, right? So it's not dour fact-checking links to Wikipedia, but there's use of memes and they hire comedians and, and they bring in people to to play the game. But I think it would be sort of incomplete if that was the only thing they were doing. Um, and I think maybe there's also a danger in, in just playing that game. But the other thing that they do is, it comes from a diagnosis, I think, that one of the things people are doing when they're spreading fake news is, and when they're subscribing to conspiracy theories is, reaching for some measure of control, a theory that explains how the world works, that you've glimpsed and all these other people haven't. And so the other part of this strategy is to form digital platforms for the raising of petitions, of being able to communicate with mm. government in a way that makes them more responsive. And the hope is that when you have a citizenry who feels that they're being heard, that perhaps some of the underlying causes um, uh, for the spread of misinformation, disinformation, the urgency of that diminishes a little bit. And yeah. all of that is, you know, it's an uphill battle. Um, but I, But I wanted to kind of pay tribute to it by, by recording it. Uh, yeah. Hi. Hi, thank you very much for your talk. No one is right all the time, so how do you lose graciously, perhaps is the best way to ask my question. I think through repetition. <laughs> um, uh, so in debating, in the World Championships, there are 500 teams. And it becomes knockout at some point. So you're probably going to be in the 499. <laughs> and I was every time except once, right, um, in the universities, at the universities level. 
And I think one of the things that that teaches you is two things. One is um, you can be right and still lose a debate, right? And decoupling having access to the truth and being able to persuasively convince other people of it, the knowledge that the two are a little bit different, I think reduces the stakes a little bit for me personally, of being able to say, okay, I'm pretty sure this is still right, but now I know there's a, a skills component that I need to invest in. Uh, the other thing I would say too is, as you say, when you accept that, you can't be right all the time and also you can't win all the time. Then the emphasis shifts, I think, a little bit from just wanting to win to ensuring that the rules by which we're playing the game are fair. Because there may be wins or losses but in order for the playing of that game to be worthwhile, it needs to be by a set of rules that we can all kind of endorse. Um, and, and that to me is also democracy at its best, right? Is there's contest, but you're not going to win all the time. You're not going to lose all the time. Um, but we, we need to be okay with the game we're playing. Thank you. That just made me feel 1% better about the 2019 Terrific. election loss. 99 to go. <laughs> Hi, my name's Jeff. Uh, thank Hi, you Jeff. for um, your tour and your speech. Thanks so much. Um, you spoke about fake news. You spoke just in your last answer about being, having the correct answer or the truth in your answer. Yet debating, at least the way I understand it from my school days, is that you don't get to pick your side of the argument. Yeah. And so 50% of the time you're arguing theoretically against something you disagree with. Yes. How do, you, how do you face almost that moral dilemma and when does it actually become harmful doing your craft at its best ability, yep. uh, arguing for something that may actually be quite against your worldview? I love the question. I think it becomes harmful when the game doesn't end. So one of the things that you do in debate is you get assigned a position. You have to put up the best case for it. But debating is a two-hour activity. And then it ends, right? And then you go back to thinking, well, hang on, I've argued for something that I don't actually believe. Where am I at the end of this? Right? And for me, that... You know, we, we tend to talk down games and play and, you know, these kinds of words... But I think there's value for it, you know, especially in a world where at least my feeling of a lot of our public conversations are that we're just stuck in our corners um, on our side or, you know, in our trenches and there's no room to move. And my hope is that that maybe through that process of play of if not arguing for something you don't believe, then at least putting yourselves in the other person's shoes for a second and thinking it through, um, that that might give us a little bit of wriggle room. So it becomes harmful when you don't understand the limits of games, right? which is that it has to end. It can't be... Um, you still need to do the hard work of figuring out what your convictions are, of developing judgment and discernment and all of those things, um, and so I see debating as not a replacement for that, but something that could maybe supplement it. Do you want to say something in response to that? Yeah. Did you ever pull your punches? Mm. Um, that's a, a really interesting question. I think I did, um, because... So there's... One is... Within even one disagreement, there's like a thousand things you could disagree about, right? And... Focusing on the one that you think will be most productive, most conducive to persuading the other side. So that's more picking your battles. And then even within arguing a point, um, I think most people are, are pretty sensitive to the fact that, as the questioner just before asked, that not everyone is right all the time. And if you're just out there saying, I've got 
the full answer and everything you're saying is wrong, I actually don't think you have much of a chance of persuading another side. Um, so um, in that sense, I think I would have pulled my punches. Thanks. Um, thank you, Bo and Andrew. I'm wondering if there is a potential for a chapter on agreement. Um, the reason I ask this is, it seems like there, in so many debates, the debates are so polarizing, and people stake their identity on particular positions that even when compelling evidence and argumentation is presented, people feel like their identity is vested in it. Yeah. And I guess, uh, I mean, obviously in a debate format, you don't get a lot of agreement. Yes. But typically, in a debate format, it's either side. But perhaps, is there an opportunity for a third space, which is advanced understanding and, and maybe a common position? I love that question. Um, and I'd answer it in two ways. So there's maybe two different kinds of agreement. So one is, there should be agreement about how we're going to have a conversation, how we're going to go about things, how we're going to discuss this issue. And, um, and I hope the, the, the book can be the starting point for a discussion of what that consensus might look like. Right? And, and mine is just one perspective on, on some ideas on what, what we think our disagreements should look like. But you'll have ideas too, and we might disagree about them. But I think coming to some common understanding of how we should have our discussions, that sense of agreement seems really important. But the one you're asking in the question uh, may be a different kind of agreement, which is a more substantive agreement right, on the positions. And um, it's a really interesting point, and I think it gets to the previous question about um, when things start to become harmful. One thing I love about debating is even in the competitive formal debate that I'm describing, I say A, you say B. And it's not really in my interest to change my answer from A, and it's not in your interest to change your answer from B. But when we're done, when the debate is finished, we're probably walking away saying, it's not fully A, and it's not fully B. It might be C, or it might just be less A or less B. <laughs> and, um, and that seems really useful. And you know, like, children actually, so when I look at even primary school kids doing the debate, doing debating, they talk one way in the debate, and then afterwards on the bus home, they actually say things like, oh, you had a pretty good point there, or something like that, you know? And so this isn't, I think, a, a, an unnatural um, thing, but it just may be that as adults we don't play, and so we've forgotten how it works. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I hope that answers. Yeah, thank you, thank you. thanks. Um, one of the criticisms that often is made of Andrew's former discipline of economics is that it makes a false assumption about the rationality of an actor, sort of homo economist. Is there a risk that you're making the, the same error when it comes to a, a, an observer of a debate, assuming that they're driven by rationality rather than by identity, as we heard before, or emotion or prejudice or some other influence? I'd love to get your thoughts on um, maybe the economics. Uh, it's your show tonight. All right, I'll give it a go. Um, well, I think the uh, it's a good challenge. There's... There's a, there's a lot of counsel these days and a lot of, and there's even books written on having civil disagreement that require people to be angels. You know, it just sort of says, let's, let's listen and, 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 and so on. And, and I didn't really want to write that kind of book because um, I think it's not honest to some of the more mercurial reasons why we engage in disagreement, which is sometimes we want the thrill of having our ideas clash against another, right? Sometimes we, we do reason with our emotions, right? We respond to how someone puts together a particular sentence, the order of the words and how they deliver it. So I think one thing debating does is 
um, it does make room for all of those things. And it may be that it does assume a certain amount of rationality. It does assume um, certainly a kind of a willingness to put your ideas in a structure, to work at them, to provide evidence and all of those things. And in some ways, it's trying to make a case for that kind of disagreement. But I would also say at its best, it also does make room for those other elements like emotion and 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 um and pride and those things so uh i want on one hand to make a case for being more rational more structured more thorough but at the same time maybe the art of it um recognizes that that has its limits too we'll make this the uh, final question of the night Hey, Tim. Hi, Bo. Uh, thanks very much. Um, you talked about kind of the bully and the wrangler, um, and it seems to me that particularly in election cycles, um, our political leaders, like our political leaders around the world, are kind of incentivized to be a small target and to actually avoid, actively avoid debate, to just stick to the talking points. Um, and I'm wondering if you agree with that and kind of like what's the impetus for people to engage in good debate if it's easier to win votes by not doing that. Yeah, and Tim was my colleague. Uh, we started at the newspaper um, together. Um, I'd say two things. I think the first is the incentives and the impetus that politicians respond to are not fixed. Um, and part of it is what we demand of our politicians, right? And, and my hope is that we all get a sense that there's something a bit wrong happening when, um, uh, when the state of the public discourse isn't where we want it to be, but better understanding what disagreements are and what they can be, I think, allows citizens to make more demands um, of the kind of politics that we want to see. Um, and just on the substance of the question, I mean, um, in some ways, one of the things that gives me hope about politics in this country is it does feel, maybe because it's less moneyed, less institutionalized in some ways, there's, there's capacity to surprise. And I think the last election surprised, surprised me. And, um, and when people are unhappy with the way things are, but also the way in which politics is unfolding now. So that's not just an unhappiness about substantive positions, but about how politics, politics is unfolding. Um, I think there is room in this country to respond to that, um, and more room to respond to that um, than in some other places. Um, so that for me is some reason to have hope. In just a moment, I'm going to hand over to Wayne Morgan to offer a vote of thanks. But, Bo, I can't help but notice, we're two blokes discussing your book, and then we asked for questions, and five blokes came up to the microphone. Why do you think that is, and how do you get more women involved in debating? There's a lot to be undone. Um, there's a lot to be undone. Um, one thing I've noticed about debating is um, that some of its best participants um, tend to be slightly marginal figures. And I think the reason for that is because they have to learn often as a as a matter of self-preservation to read the room before they speak um, but that decision to say enough reading the room <laughs> to say something um, that is a always going to be a kind of a leap of faith and I think it is 
on all of us from probably a very young age um, to make it easier for people to be able to take that leap. And um, gender disparity is um, an important way in which that expresses itself and a, and a visible way. But I think there are others too of people who don't feel like the conversation that's unfolding would accommodate them. And I think we have to change that. Thank you. Uh, and if you wanted to ask Bo a question but didn't want to do it in this forum, he's going to be signing books uh, out to outside as well. So please do take that opportunity. Um, join me now in uh, welcoming Wayne Morgan to offer tonight's vote of thanks. Uh, yes, another bloke. Although I like to think my sexuality gives me a slightly different take on masculinity, but anyway. It's my honour to have been asked to give this vote of thanks this evening, and there's so many things I'd like to say about your book, Bob, so please excuse the paucity uh, of my comments in the five minutes that I have. But, Bo, thank you for your wisdom in this book. Thank you for its narrative. And thank you for reminding us that debate, good debate, is not only important for our public institutions, but important to each of us personally in our interactions with each other and the world. The wisdom in your book is manifest, and thank you for sharing some of that with us tonight. In reading your book, I was struck with the way it achieves multiple goals at once. Not only does it offer practical and valuable insights to those who may, who may participate, like yourself, in debating societies and competitions, but more importantly, of course, it teaches each of us how to communicate with each other in meaningful ways that have the potential to bring about cultural change one conversation at a time. And how to disagree productively is just so important in this. As a legal academic, part of my role is to teach law students how to argue. And I'm constantly reminding my students that the art of persuasion is just that, an art. Not only does it require knowledge and logic, it requires the ability to listen, it requires empathy, and it requires eloquence. The wisdom in your book teaches us about all of these things. I will recommend it to law students who see themselves as the QCs, senior counsel and judges of the future. But thank you also for your narrative. When I was first asked to be involved tonight, I feared that a book on debating might be a bit of a boring read. <laughs> How wrong I was. And part of what makes your book so engaging is the narrative about your journey. From immigrant schoolboy in not always welcoming Australian schools, through to university debating world champion and beyond. Your narrative brought back memories for me about that peculiarly legal form of debating competition, the moot court. And as a student, I became a mooter and like yourself, progressed from local stouches to world championships. And as a legal academic, I have often played the role of a moot court coach. I must admit, I've been dying to ask you, Bo, I'll ask you after, whether now as a JD student, you have become a mooter. And if so, what mooting has taught you about good and bad arguments? Perhaps this might be a sequel. The narrative strength of your book enhances your insights and makes them memorable. Finally, I was struck by the way your conclusion brought us back to the personal. If I may quote from your conclusion, to change the world, debate has to change the lives of debaters. And I hope this is a lesson that we can all learn. And the comments you've made tonight, positionality, moral worth, equality, are fundamentally important, I think, in that process.
So thank you again for your generosity in sharing a conversation with us this evening. And can I also thank the Honourable Dr Andrew Lee for his part in this conversation. With your recently increased workload, congratulations by the way, we are very grateful that you continue to build on your many links to the ANU and we hope that continues. And so finally, can I, all, can I remind all of you, as has already been said, that Bo will be available tonight for signing copies of his book, which, of course, I am urging you all to buy. So please join me in, thinking, in thanking Bo this evening.